This episode is brought to you by Northern Rural Supplies. Northern Rural Supplies proudly service the Kimberley and Pilbara regions, specialising in livestock sales, real estate, animal health and management, fencing, fertiliser, water and all other requirements. They stock your everyday needs to feed your dogs, cats, horses, chooks, camels and even goats. The whole team is based in Broome, so make sure you give them a call for all your agricultural and semi-rural needs. Central Station Podcast, where we bring you stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one, as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. Jesty Pasquale is a born and bred territory girl. Even though her childhood was coloured with living on and visiting cattle stations, she went on to excel in the English equine discipline of mounted games, competing overseas three times while representing Australia. In this episode, Jess shares her latest plans to compete in the Mongol Derby, a 1,000 kilometre horse race. And we chat about her history of equine pursuits in both Australia and overseas, which have put her on the road to Mongolia. To start, I asked Jess what the Mongol Derby is. So the Mongol Derby is a thousand kilometre horse race across the wilderness in Mongolia. Uh, So you get multiple different horses. Basically stop every 35, 40 k's to change horses. And they give you about 10 days to do it. Leading pack usually finishes around seven days. So 10 days, 1,000 kilometres, you're doing about 100 k's a day. Yeah, and least. changing horses every 35 to 40 k's, you can, you're can you on two to three horses a day. I thought that doing like a 20, 30 k muster was, you know, <laughs> hard work. You're about to ride 100 k's a day for 10 days, Jess. Why? 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 <laughs> I don't understand. Uh, a couple of my good friends have done it and sort of watched them fairly closely as they went through it and always thought, geez, that'd be something I reckon I could do. And then since having kids, um, probably haven't taken to motherhood that well. A little bit selfish, I guess. I don't know, whatever. No, what, what, do you, what do you explain to me? How do you come to that conclusion? Oh, I just want to do something for myself. I think that's the opposite because if you don't do look up, you know, they say like, you know, you've got to put on your mask before you put on someone else's, like on the aeroplane, you know, that analogy. And if you don't look after yourself, then you won't be like your best self and your happy self and your best, the, the best mother you can be. Yeah. I'm like, here we are. And you're like, hang on. I thought I was coming to a podcast, not therapy. But I think that's a really interesting point because I guarantee you're probably not the only person who feels that way, but. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I can see how you might think, you know, 
but if you're not spending every minute with them or whatnot, that yeah. Oh, it's just it's just something like I need to do for myself to challenge myself. Um, after not doing much, and I know like that's I shouldn't use kids as a an excuse for being held back or whatever, but it's just something that's worked out that it's not been overly easy to go out and do things. Um, time constraints, husband away all the time. I guess it's just part of the territory. Everyone's like it, you know. It's just the way it is. Husband usually works away. Mum stuck at home with the kids. And I've been lucky I have had nannies, but at the same time, I haven't just had on my ass while I've had a nanny. Yeah, exactly. You've been working the whole so. time. so. But I think that's something that – so I've got like 20-something friends on stations that had babies in the last two years, and I think no matter how many times you've seen it happen before or you've been around friends with kids until you – and I mean, I don't have my own kids, but that, you know, how you think, oh, well, you see them like – I don't think until you're there and you've had kids yourself, you can know how hard it is to like actually, and especially in this industry when you're so used to, like you've had a whole career of going out like to the most like remote parts of the territory and Kimberley or whatnot and doing all these things and being so independent and all of a sudden like that changes. And yes, like you had nine months with, you know, a belly that you kind of knew things are coming, but until it happens, like you just can't. So I think that's really cool though that, and then what an example for your kids to see as well. So, how did the Mongol Derby race come about? I feel like I've heard before it's got something to do with Genghis Khan, which I'm not going to lie, I thought was a Disney character. Apparently, he's a real person. <laughs> so, it sort of replicates what he did, I suppose. So, like, basically, you're going cross-country. There's no track or map. Well, we've got GPSs, but there, there's no map on there. You just sort of, you know, where your next stage is, so you head in that direction so you could go over anything which is basically what they did back in the day so to get places so what are you going to come across do you know what the like the the landscape is like over there and are you going to come across wild animals and yeah so you can sort of they're saying that you can go from being boiling hot one day to freezing cold the next day and people have not only had frostbite but uh, heat strike in the same race (laughs) and it can be raining cats and dogs and um, if you take the wrong turn you'll end up going over a huge mountain or trying to work out a way around it or crossing deep rivers or and if you don't get to your next station then you're just going to have to rough it and well it's rough anyway but tough it and camp out and hopefully find a nomad family that's willing to have you and their dogs don't try to eat you when you get there. So if you do make it to where you want to go, like, at that day, there's some kind of accommodation or base set up, is there? Yeah, it's just a base set up. I couldn't tell you exactly what it's going to look like. And if you don't, you literally have to ask strangers, like, if you can camp with them. Like, they're not affiliated with the race. They are just like other humans out there in the world. Yeah, and well, like I, I'm assuming that they probably know something's going on, but oh yeah, I'm and they, every year when all these like crazy yeah. white people ride past on horses, <laughs> ah, crazy white people back again. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and so I can't even fathom the idea of a hundred kilometers a day. Like, what do you reckon is the most? Because you've spent your whole life in the saddle, and so you'd be used to it. But not like a hundred kilometers a day is still a different kettle of fish. Doing like thirty k muster. I've never like. Yeah, I've never done any real endurance stuff. So, yeah, 30Ks, maybe longer, like if you ever have had to run back a few times or whatever, but it's 
yeah, mastering is the longest. I mean, I've been in the saddle all day, show jumping and whatever else, but it's not it's not the same. Like you, you still get a rest, but it's you're sort of trotting and cantering as much as you can. Because the other thing is you've got to keep the, the horse's heart rate's got to come back down yeah. under a certain level once you get to the the next stage. Otherwise, you get hit with penalties. So, like, I mean, you've got to be conservative, but then at the same time, depending on the horse, you may not be able to. I think it's one thing, like you said, like, you know, 30K muster. And, yeah, there'll be, you know, sometimes something might break from the mob and you'll canter out and get it or do some trotting or whatnot. But for the most part, like, if you have got your mob walking nicely, like, you can just walk. But you're going to be – so you're, like, tripling, more than tripling your distance, and you're going to have to be, like, riding, like, trotting and cantering. And they're teeny tiny little horses too, aren't they? Yeah. And not, like, you don't get to bring your own saddle or anything. No, they have specific saddles that they use, yeah. um, which is – it's more – it's it's pretty well like a half-breed stock saddle. Um, but you take your own stirrups and, yeah. That's interesting. Just to make sure, I guess, because they don't know how tall everyone's yeah. going to be. And- yeah, and so, yeah, the saddles have just got spring bars. You yeah. slip them on. Yeah, cool. And have you planned, like, to fly somewhere afterwards on the way home so you can just have, like, a week sitting in some kind of spa to, like, recover? So I don't feel like you're going to be walking anywhere. <laughs> what does everyone else say after they finish the race? I think a lot of people just sort of come straight home, but... Um, can they walk, though? Oh, well, yeah, depending on how injured they've gotten. <laughs> I'm like, how can you not be injured when you've just done a, a thousand kilometres in a spa? Well, the injuries sort of vary. <laughs> In severity, but and so that is the middle of this year that that's on. Yeah. Now that so while that is a huge adventure, I suppose on the one hand, when I think about it though, it's not necessarily you know it kind of just fits in with what you do in life anyway. So this is just kind of taking it overseas. But you've you've gone overseas for equestrian pursuits before. You've travelled extensively. You've been in. Um, remote situations and things like like what the I feel like the Mongol Derby is going to bring together like the best of all your adventures so far like with horses overseas remote locations having to really think and do all these different things does that sound about right? Hopefully, hopefully it all works out. And yeah, I, I'd like to feel that I'm fairly prepared for it, but then at the same time, I can still see it's going to be challenged because you don't you don't know you don't know what's going to. Until you're actually there. Until so. you're there. What are you doing to prepare for it? Training pretty hard. Um, I sort of had a little bit of a setback last week where I hurt my back. So um, just steadied up a little bit for this week to let it heal a little bit and then hopefully I can hook back in again. So are you training like on a horse or do you train off a horse? Like what do you? what is involved? Definitely need the- to train on a horse. Yeah. I haven't done a lot of horse riding lately, but... Um, I'll be getting one young horse in shortly and she's going to cop it. But um, basically I've been doing a lot of fitness, trying to get a lot of cardio in, bit of weights, um, learning to run. I don't run much, so especially not long distance. I used to do athletics as a kid, but I was a short distance person, not a long distance person. <laughs> so they reckon that you should at least be able to run 10Ks. In case you get thrown off yours and you need to jog to the next tra- checkpoint. Oh, Christ. <laughs> <laughs> so that's going to kill me. But Does anyone ever finish this race in like 20 days? Because I feel like I'd be like, is anyone going to be there like 10 days later when I finally cross the line? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think everyone sort of gets through in the, in the 10 days. It's um, difficult, but, yeah, most of the time I think they finish in 10 days. So. so as I just mentioned back 
back a few minutes ago, you've been in the saddle pretty much your whole life. Where where did it all start for you? Where did you first jump on a horse? At Mobile Down Station. Uh, my grandparents used to manage it a long time ago. So um, I think I was about two or two and a half or something when I first started riding and competing in Jim Carners at the local rodeos and camp drafts that we ran. Uh, when we were at Mabel, they like all the workers used to have a lunchtime siesta and being a four or five-year-old kid, whatever I was at the time, obviously didn't want to have a sleep. So I'd disappear while everyone else was asleep and go to the horse yard. Uh, and mum used to have this old horse. Well, he was an old, um, four or five years old, called Doctor Who. Mum was sort of training him, doing a bit of rodeo stuff, camp draft stuff on him. And I used to go down there and there was a big feed trough, uh, basically wedge of 44s cut in half, welded together and on legs. And I'd put a bit of feed in in to get him to come up to it and I'd climb up in there and, and put a head check on him and then run that feed along the along the trough and he'd turn sideways and I could jump on bareback and away I'd go. We'd go cruising around. Now, I just have to ask you, is head check... Is that like a halter or is that something different? Similar to a halter. Okay. But what it's all it? sort of one piece. So it's, it's basically got a nose band and a, and a, a band that goes over the head. Oh, okay. With a strap that generally goes down to the girth or, or oh, breast yes. sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, no. And then you'd, you'd put a bridle on top of that. Yeah. Yeah, okay, I'm with you. Yeah. I just don't know if I've... I must have heard that word at some point in my life, and I was like, "Oh, if I'm not sure, there's probably else someone, li- someone else listening, <laughs> being like, oh, oh, what? Cool.' So here you are, and so like, would people just, I guess, they'd wake up after their nap and be like, "Oh, we're missing a kid." Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Basically, Mum would wake up and, and oh, Jessica's gone. So and generally, she knew where I was, or disappeared down to the orchards, and yeah, yeah. She'd turn up there, and here I'd be cruising around. So I guess when I said you've spent your whole life in a saddle, I probably should have said you've spent your whole life on the back of a horse, not necessarily in a saddle. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, and so horses have been a pretty big part of your life the whole way through. And as I, and as I also just said before, like going overseas for the Mongol Derby isn't the first time that you've gone overseas for, um, equestrian pursuits. So what have you done before? Yeah. So in 93, we moved back to Catherine, where, which is where I was born. Joined the local pony club, grew up through pony club as you go, up through the ranks, whatever. Um, in 98, I joined or well, got picked on my first mounted games, Prince Philip Mounted Games team, which was to compete at the Easter competition in Darwin. Um, and we had a few setbacks that year. One of the girls on the team had a, a freak accident, she fell off or her horse slipped over and she bumped her head and ended up in intensive care for quite a long time. Um, so we sort of lost a team member there and then we come went up to Darwin at Easter time for the competition and then it just rained and rained and rained and rained and it was too wet the night before so it all got canned and we had to come back up in April and by the time we got back up there we were fairly well trained. So we thought anyway, but <laughs> we got up there and, and um, gave it our best and the Catherine team won for the first time in forever or ever, I think. And, yeah, we were sort of a team of four. Generally, a mounted games team is a team of five. So yeah. we, we were one man down. We all had to ride. So, yeah, that was pretty cool. And I, I sort of got hooked on mounted games 
from there. So what are the events in Amount of Games? Because I'm, I'm here thinking like Egg and Spoon or something, but I'm guessing it's – oh, really? It's that similar. Is, really? So okay. It's, it's basically your, um, like your sporting events but as a team, so it's a relay race. Yeah. Uh, but with a little bit more agility and not so much a bit more speed but more agility. So there's races where um, – Oh, one that's called the stepping stones. You have six, six stones lined up in the middle about a foot apart each. Uh, and so you go up as fast as you can towards the stones, hop off before you get there, run across the stones and your foot, each foot has to hit each stone. And then you vault back on your horse and go up to the next line where the next person goes and does the same thing. So once four people have gone through, it's finished. But it's just, it's, it's very fast pace. There's um, egg and spoon. You bend through poles holding a spoon with an egg on it and then come back and you have to pass it over to your next person without dropping the egg and then they go through and so on. And you sort of set it up so you generally have your, your best and fastest riders the first and, and last and then you have your sort of your media, mediocre rider is in, oh, your next best is second and then your mediocre rider is in third where you can sort of, you know your last person can pick up pace if they if something happens or, or yeah. whatever. Like you can, you sort of there's a little bit of math, science, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, there. strategy. Yeah, yeah. So now I have to ask now: Were you first, second, third, or fourth in I the team? I was fourth rider. Good work. Yeah, good work. And so, how how do you go from being in Catherine to going international? Because I feel like it's great that there is a pony club in Catherine, and that there's there are these opportunities, but. So many of the opportunities really are on the East Coast, down south, or I suppose in Queensland. You know, there's so much more competition, so much more opportunity. How does, you know, you know, access to better horses, better coaches, better whatever? So, obviously not, though, if little old mate from Catherine's made it overseas. There's been a few, well, a couple of people yeah. from Catherine go. but That's awesome. Basically, um, it has changed a little bit since I did it, I'm pretty sure, but um, – Pretty well, you've got to go national is the next step. So get on, like I was on the territory team. I think my first year was 2000 I got on as a reserve. 2001 was the first year that I actually competed and that it was in Sydney. Um, so pretty well go through training, do selections. You get picked on based on your experience, your, um, your skills and the way you conduct yourself. It's not just about... You know, so it's yeah, not just about your skills. It's about how how good a sports person you are and horsemanship. Like, there's a bit of everything's involved. And then 2001 was actually when I first tried out for international as well. At the time, they sort of they used to take one person from each state, with one state missed missed out each year. Like they sort of it was a bit of a round robin sort of thing, um, which that state was the reserve. Yeah, you know what I mean. Um, uh, so it was Territory's turn. It was me and another girl from Darwin tried out. I rode like absolute rubbish at the selections, but the coach at the time, she'd just taken me to Sydney, knew what I'd done down there um, and had seen training. So it wasn't just picked on the day, but, yeah. you know, so it's sort of I got through, went to England. That was the first time. Uh, we don't You don't take your own horses. It's all borrowed horses. Um so yeah, you get four mounted game. Even for like for the state stuff, that's yeah, you take your own horse. National, you go down south, you borrow horses, and you got to swap horses 
oh, it's going back a few years now, but it's 21 games and you swapped horses every three races. Yeah. So you'd get a set of five horses, you get on, you got about five minutes, ten minutes before the first race of the set starts to work your horse out. So you want to see whether it turns, stops, whether it interacts with other horses, so whether you can do a flying change for your changeover because everything pretty well every race had a changeover you're passing something to someone else at a gallop how many times did you end up going overseas three so this would have been when you're so high school was it yeah oh yeah and then a little bit after so 2002 was my first year i went yeah. to england uh so that was that was the prince philip mounted games the world like the world championship so there was america britain canada and us, Australia. And then 2004 was the next time I went. Their selection criteria on this one was slightly different because it was a different event and it was a little bit new. It was more of an invitational event with New Zealand. So pretty well you put a CV in and then they picked you off your CV, more or less. That that was the first time uh, I went to New Zealand. And we rode on the North Island against... There was 13 teams all up, so there was 12 New Zealand teams and one Australian team, uh, and that we come second by three points. Uh, Nicely done. (laughs) That was the first time they'd invited Australia. (laughs) But they were regretting that. (laughs) And then they like they continue to do it afterwards, and then uh, two years later in in 2000, uh, four years later in 2008. I went again, but this time they actually did a selection for it. So there was a couple other people from the NT that that tried out, and I got picked. And was and that went back again. to New Zealand? Yeah. So I was actually working at Ruby Plains Station in WA by then. Real and so like was this so middle of the mustering season? You just had to be like, sorry, I'm just going to pop off to New Zealand and <laughs> go, you know, represent our country. More or less, it was in May, so in the height of the of first round, basically. Um. So yeah, and well, Ruby Plains was owned is, is owned by SK, uh, you know, Kidman, Kidman, yeah, at the time, and they sponsored me, and and so that was with Merv Watley, who's still there as the manager yeah. now. Yeah. I guess because yeah, so that's only what twelve years ago, I suppose, the last time. Yeah. That so you said you were working at Ruby Plains then, but I know before that, before you came out working on stations, you actually after school. So so the the mounted games, that's all an English discipline. Yep. So, and then you went, but, you know, you stuck with horses after school and you went uh, horse breaking for a year. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, it was more six. I reckon it was about six months. Or, yeah. Five or six months. Yeah. Okay. Uh, with Daryl Brown, who was a cutting horse trainer. And did you um, stay in the territory for that or did you go somewhere else? Yeah. So, he was he was um, down at Jill Mink and used to break in the, in the community horses um, for them and then had his own horses on top of that and used to go cutting and stuff down south um so yeah i went and did that with him and that was going from english to to into a cutting saddle so and so how was that transition so not only going from english to sort of cutting and stock work but then going from these like nice ponies to you know um (sighs) I guess what would exactly the call some of them nice. Well, well, the, <laughs> the ones you know, I'm sure you rode something nice in New Zealand or, or England. I did you know, actually. Yeah. The New Zealand horses were very good. Yeah, and then going to was it like community horses or did you have any like what, or just station horses and? Well, I sort of been breaking in horses since I was ten. Really? Um, so my mum used to do a lot of the groundwork, and then 
even before that, I would have to get on them to ride them unless they were really rank. Um, then Dad would have to do it. But, yeah, basically from about 10 onwards, I was sort of doing a bit more and and um, started training and breaking in my own horses. That's so cool. I'm just sitting here just like, wow, Jess. Woman Crush Wednesday on a Monday. <laughs> So did you want to go work with Dale Brown after school just to kind of refine and consolidate, I guess, what you've been picking up over your over your teenage years? He actually offered me the job. I, I didn't yeah. um, chase him for it. And it was just, yeah, I needed – well, I had work in town. I, was, I had three jobs while I finished year 12. So, um, you know, I, I had work but wanted to do something different. So – yeah, I used to go down there. It was only like Monday to Friday, so I'd drive down Sunday afternoon and, and come back Friday afternoon. We'd get up early and, and ride the breakers and then go and ride a couple of the cutting horses and, and then knock off at like lunchtime. It wasn't a very strenuous job, but <laughs> I did get run over. Oh, the first horse that I rode when I got down there, it was a beautiful horse, like probably nice red roan horse. And... um it had come up from down south that somebody had sent it to Daryl to to be fixed, more or less, because they tried to break it in and all it did was buck and they couldn't do anything with it. So I just drove straight on this horse and it was all good. went well, bucked for a little bit and it was right and hung up and whatever and he stopped bucking, so we cruising around. Round yard was only a little tiny one. Daryl was just about to tell me, right, I pull him up and get off, and he went to town again and got me with my feet back and sent me over the front and stood on the back of my neck. Oh, my God. Gosh, I was out out for a couple of days, but <laughs> a bit tender. <laughs> I come back on Monday, I was right again to go. Oh wow! So like, and so, where was this community that you guys were breaking them in? What was its name? Sorry, uh, Jilt Mangan is down the Roper. Highway. Okay, so did it, was there like a clinic nearby or oh, no? Just sit up, ice pack kinda. or something. <laughs> I don't know if they even had an ice pack to be honest. But like, I'd sort of started midweek, so that was like on the Thursday, and then yeah. The Friday, I, I did get, I got on the other horse that had come with it, but I was a bit sore, so I didn't ride him that day. But, yeah, so it wasn't until the week later that I flew back on him. But he, he come good, that horse. I do wonder sometimes how I haven't broken more bones. I broke my wrist when I was at Mabel Downs, falling off a, I was swinging on a clothesline, fell off and broke my growth plate. Wow, that was a rank clothesline. <laughs> Proper rank. <laughs> And then 2019, I broke my finger, jammed it in a uh, slide ramp. <laughs> That's the only two bones I've broken. And I really don't know how I haven't broken more because I swear my head is heavier than my backside <laughs> and I always land on my head. <laughs> Centre of gravity. I love it. <laughs> so you went you went horse breaking and then out on stations pretty much. So that was your next adventure. Yeah, so I, I went and worked uh, at... Kalani Station, and everything was horseback. So we used to draft on horseback, obviously mustard on horseback. We used to rope calves to brand them. That's so – and so, sorry, just for anyone listening, so when you say draft on horseback, so that's basically once you've brought in all the cattle and you're sorting them out, usually we do it on foot through some sort of infrastructure in the yard, so there it's a pound draft or a race draft. And so you guys were doing it on horseback. Yeah, so the setup at Kalani was quite good. There was, it, everything was set up to, to be able to draft on a horse in the yard. 
Um, it's not as easy as it looks either, by the way. Yeah. I had to do that when I lived in America. And really, you really want a horse that will move off your leg. Well, at the time, it was John Quintana was. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he was American, wasn't he? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Oh, is that the fella that built the house out at Carbine Park? Yeah. Yes. That's a cool yeah. house. And when I walked in there, uh, when the Everett's are there, and I was like, this house is so American. And they're like, well, funny story. <laughs> yeah. It's built by an American. And I guess that's why you roped as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we were camped out for a lot of the time. So um, to get horses, because Kalani was very horse orientated, so everything was done on a horse. So everyone had four or five camp horses um, that was in the camp, and then the camp was usually, you know, six or eight people. So way we'd, we'd go with – we used to have to walk all the horses out. There's no point in trucking them out. It was too big a job, so. Oh, okay. Yeah, you'd go cross-country and walk the horses, or sometimes you'd be on a fence or on a road or whatever going out, but one of the – um, most memorable trip was going directly across country and it was a fair distance. And then them horses would gallop for the first 10 or 15 k's just because they were fresh, a bit of excitement. And so you'd finally get them under control and start walking them. And then, I don't know, it's like halfway through the day, there was only three of us with these horses and you know, 50 or 40 horses, whatever it was. And, um, yeah, mob of Brumbies ran through them and decided they were going to take them as well. So then we had to... We'll lamb around and try and get the our horses out of the Brumbies and took a bit of doing, but we managed. And the little horse I was riding, he was a good little horse, but he used to buck a little bit. So I was a little bit nervous with him because he could buck. He was he was a hard bucker. And anyway, he went so red and in a ditch on top of me, and we got back on and hoped for the best and way we went again, but managed to get on top of him and got him under control, and it was good after that. But yeah. that just sounds so man from Snowy River. <laughs> Like the Brumbies came through and and took our horse and we had to go get it back. And it's on Kalani, which is very McLeod's yes. daughters. So you used to go out to camp. I'm just trying to just want to put some context in for people who may not um, have worked on a station before. So you can either be based out of the homestead for a period of time or because the properties are so big, you go out somewhere else far away on the property, set up camp and base yourselves out of there for however many weeks or months at a time. And so you guys would have all your horses, well, four or five each, so, yeah, that would have been trucking, what, eight, five, about 40 horses. So yeah. that's a couple of truckloads. So you, a few spares here and there. Yeah, and, and then there. spares and whatever whatever else. So you guys actually just, like you said, it's one thing if you're taking them down a fence line, but going cross-country, like, did you, I guess, are horses kind of like cattle or in a sense where they kind of like to stay as a mob or I feel like they could be pretty independent. How did you not lose horses on like a, what was the longest um, trip you had to walk, like the biggest distance you had to walk them out to camp, do you reckon? I think about 50 k's, I reckon. But they, like, they do sort of stay together a bit and they do follow a lead good. Yeah. Um, so if you've also, got a good lead horse. Oh, like, but when you say lead horse, is that somebody on a horse? Yes. Oh, so, so kind of like mustering cattle, like you have your lead. Yeah, have then- a lead and then you, like, um, yeah, have, have a couple of people on the, on the wing that sort of, at the same time, they, they'd bring the tail up as well. So you just, horse, I don't know, horses are a lot easier to walk than cattle, I think, once you get them pulled up. Like yeah. Bit, yeah. That's fascinating. And so when you're going cross country, you're just following like cattle pads or something and, and kind of know where your water points are or whatnot. And yeah, just following a general direction. Most people sort of know, well, at the time, the people, the other people that were with me, they knew, they knew where they were going. So, well, we just went in that direction. You, you get there eventually. <laughs> 
I can see why maybe the idea of the Mongol Derby doesn't terrify you like it would some people, because I think you've ridden horses overseas already. You've ridden, you've, you've had worked horses out in the middle of nowhere in these like remote. I mean, it's not like you could really pull up and ask some random family out on Kalani station to, <laughs> to look after you for the night. Cause there was no other humans out there, but um, that's just, that's really cool. Being at Kalani would have been, and so you said you're there for 18 months, must have been incredible, particularly under, I mean, oh, I never met him, but John Quintana, like just that American influence, like something so different to any other, you know, just just to have that different experience and work under somebody was, who'd had their own very different experiences and been raised and done things very differently where they came from. And then you go to Ruby Plains, which has Merv Wortley, who is still there now, and he's a bit of an institution. And he is like, I, I don't know, we use Ruby Plains when I've worked for that department as like one of the examples of a really well-managed place and like very well-known for more Merv and his horses and whatnot. So um, Merv is technically my uncle. Are you serious? <laughs> Well, related to everyone. Marriage. Oh, okay, so Jenny is my mum's sister. Oh, Jenny Briggs. <laughs> I love that, guys. I'm having an epiphany <laughs> mid-recording because, cause, like, she never changed her name, did she? No. Yeah. Oh, no, they're not married. Oh, well, yeah. yeah. It's been, like, a million years. Yeah. So same, same. Oh, my God. Look at me having all these, like, epiphanies live on the record. I'm not editing this out either. <laughs> okay. So, wow, you've been, like, got connections, girl. <laughs> So, yeah, what was it like, uh, I suppose, what was it like working for Merv, I suppose, and then you did say while you were at Ruby Plains, like, I suppose that also maybe explains how you were able to just, you know, kind of pop off during first round and <laughs> represent your country in a equine <laughs> sport. But, yeah, yeah, honestly, like, I, I mean, I suppose everyone has different experiences, but I've heard so many good things about being there. But I suppose you have to say good things because it's your family, so oh, you could get really. a pretty average, <laughs> average Christmas present if you don't speak well. <laughs> I can tell you, it was tough. Merv was tough. So, like, you know, it was it was long days. It was it was hard work. You perished a bit. You didn't get a feed for a bit. Whatever. I did like, you know, everyone just hooked in and, and worked. That's that's what you did. And, and I don't know. Merv, Merv was good at getting work out of people. Yeah, I think. Like, well, he probably still is, but you know, like he just it's hard to explain, but. We had a good head stockman. He was he was good too. He was sort of a lot like Merv and been under Merv for a long time as well. Um, yeah, we used to just work. That was all we did. It was good. It was it was tough, but it was good. Good, yeah. Um, and is that so? That was t- end of two thousand six. Yeah. And then um, so I had originally set out to to go to college of some description. Anyway, I had this scholarship thing that didn't didn't end up eventuating anyway, but. Long story short, beginning of 2007, I'd been at Ruby for the, the wet season and then left and went to Longreach and did the horse course with John Arnold for the six months. So I'll get back in, I think it was the end of July, just in time for Horse Creek Camp Draft Rodeo. Um, and then, yeah, finished the season there. And then the next year was when I went to New Zealand for the last time. That one, then that was, yeah, that was mid-season in May. And, like, that was, you know, a quick trip, but then finished the year. And then after that, um, we had sort of planned on going into the mines, to be honest. Um, sort of was a little bit sick of chasing cows. Anyway, that didn't sort of finish the wet, wasn't overly keen on it. And got an offer from another long-time family friend 
who used to be the head stockman at Mabel when my grandfather was there and mum and dad worked there and everything. Like, it um, sort of fitted in and he offered us a job bull catching um, and doing his own cattle on Elquestro. I love that you're like, oh, I was a bit tired of chasing cows, so we're going to go somewhere else. Now we got an offer to literally go chase wild bulls. <laughs> so we took it. <laughs> oh, it's just a little bit different, you know. Yeah, absolutely. You know? But just the adventure, like, you know, so if you were bull catching and you're on a couple of different places and generally that's like contract work, that you probably didn't have a base then, did you? Oh, yeah, sort of. Like Lindsay had a base in Kununurra, so – yeah, While we were like, doing El Questro stuff, then we sort of we'd camp out and then come back to Kanara and yeah, that sort of but thing. That's but that's a bit different than like being on a station. Yeah. So you're pretty much camping out the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. So and that, but that wasn't I suppose none of that well, actually I have seen people kinda of, I suppose bull catching or throwing bulls on a horseback, but would would this have been in buggies with the Yeah, uh, arms? No, it wasn't with the arm. It was just a bull catcher. So with the tires on the front, you're not. Oh down. yeah, okay, yeah. cool. So that's something a bit different without horses. Oh, it was an adventure, right? Yeah. I don't know about that. I think, like, it's, I, at first I was like, oh yeah, like, you know, Jess is going to go do the Mongol Derby this year. And now, as we've gone through these stories, I'm like, well, well, duh, like, what a, like, what a logical, you know, like, progression from all these other things you've done. It's kind of like everything you've done all smooshed into one. So you've, like, I think I've said it a few times in this episode. So you've got like, the adventure, the, the, like, um, long rides on horses, the riding overseas, like, just, like, all these cool things you've done, and then it's, like, Mongol Derby's packaged it all up into one yeah. thing. But I do just want to, before we wrap up, I do just want to touch base on what how we started the episode, which is why you're doing the Mongol Derby. So, you and Nick, so you went bull catching, and then, um, I mean, we're going to do, we'll do another episode on this, because I know how much you've enjoyed recording this <laughs> podcast with me. <laughs> Yeah. Um, we'll do, cause I do want to do one, or I guess we'll do it with a few people at the Royal College, but you've spent the last 10 years working at the Catherine Rural Campus, which is part of Charles Darwin University. Um, you've had a few different roles from being a trainer and assessor who's taught students in, um, vocational and educational training, both on campus and then assess kids that are working, or students, sorry, adults that are also working out on stations. And then you, manage the farm and the cattle stud you've done quite like you know you do a lot here as people would have picked up in this episode obviously you've done so much and you're always out having an adventure doing stuff and yet kids must just you know everything changes when you have kids it is difficult and I think that's probably one of the biggest reasons why I feel the need that I need to go and do something for myself and challenge myself to to feel like I'm alive again. I don't know. I like, and it's not. Kids are awesome. Well, I don't want another one. As for those people that ask me when the next one is, it's not happening. So, you know, it's and I know that's that is that is selfish, but but yeah. and and like love them to bits. They, they're great kids, and yeah, and they haven't really restricted our adventure. I mean, we go, we've got a boat, and we go fishing, and we. Go out to camp like last year. I took time off from from the Royal College and and went out to camp as a cook. And we went in the bull catcher and we'll go in the chopper whenever we can. Case absolutely is obsessed with yeah, helicopters he and uh, you know Prim's been in the in the helicopter. Everyone's you know yeah. it's whatever. We just do it. But it's it's not like they've restricted me in any way. It's just. Well, but wouldn't – I suppose I feel like they would have, but it's just that you've managed – but, you know, but it's the way you make it work, though. 
yeah, like you can't you can't let them control your life. You've got to. I feel you've got to make them fit in into your life. Yeah. If you make them control your life, then that's that's when it do get sour, I suppose. But like it just you need to make them fit in, yeah. and and it, it makes better kids out of them. Absolutely. And so the reason I I wanted to come back to this part of the conversation is that I. You know, so many, I have so many friends now that have got kids, same situation, well, not same situation, but similar situations, or even ones in the city, you know, and like life changes so much. And just at the beginning, we're like, oh, it's a bit, you know, when you, I think it's, it's very, um, like it's very, uh, very normal response. Mom's like, oh, it's a bit selfish. I want to go and do this. But I think it's so important. And I just wanted to, if we have that conversation, hopefully somebody else will be listening to this and they may have been wanting to do something and they'll realize that it is okay. Cause, and, but that's the thing, like, especially when you've been so active and, you know, I think, and then all of a sudden, like, you're just, you know, having to, you know, your whole life changes. Like I said, like, I think it's probably, it's like the opposite of being selfish because you're continuing to grow and develop and look after yourself, which is going to make you a better mom. Whereas if you were like, well, no, I just can't do that. That's selfish. And then you just, but then, you know, I think that's when things can start to, I don't know, lead to, I don't know, I don't know if it's present or whatever, but you know, it's like, I just, I just think like what you're doing is, is yeah. And that's, I just wanted to pull you up on it and draw it out into my own little Dr. Phil session. Cause I actually think it's really cool. And I'm sure other people listening to it, like, will will be able to relate. Yeah. Even though here I am, no children of my own, but basically I know what it's all about. So. So that actually leads me into the last couple of questions for this episode, which I like to ask everyone. What is one thing you do to look after yourself? I I always do sort of try and do some sort of physical, whether it's exercising or just doing something. Like I think I need to go out and mow the lawn or go into a weight session or and last year just hooked in and done crazy boot camp thing that tried to kill me. But, you know, it's just you got to do something that gets your blood pumping, whether it's every day or once a week or yeah. you know, every couple of days or whatever. Just do something that makes you move and makes you feel good. Yeah. And just, I know, I know we've just spoken about it, but I just want to reiterate that what you're doing with Mongol Derby, I think, is also a huge like thing yeah. that you're doing for you, which is really, really cool. And last question. So reflecting back upon all the stuff we've spoken about then, what would you say you've learned along the way? Learn something from every person you meet. Like it, whether you take it away and actually use it or whether it's just something that's always sort of back in the back of your mind or, or um, you know, you can you can take a little bit from every person that you say you're doing a horsemanship with all these different horsemanship course with all these different people or whatever, you can take little bits and pieces. You mightn't entirely agree with what they're saying, but you can take bits and pieces and put it into your own little thing and make it your own. And then I think the other thing um, is just forget about what other people think of you. Ignore it because people are always going to have an opinion on someone else. So just do you. Ag Workforce specialises in recruiting for agricultural jobs including farm work, station work and agribusiness across Australia. View current jobs, advertise a position or register as a job seeker at agworkforce.com.au.